Grab your Bibles. You won't need to open them just yet, but please have your notebooks open. Get your pen or pencil ready. And let's um let's get down to business here. So I about eight or ten weeks ago, uh, you know, have a pastor friend in California. They have a, a weekly uh, or bi-weekly Bible service or Bible study uh, church service where they get to ask their pastor whatever they'd like. So people show up and and uh, and they ask the questions that um, that just they've never had the opportunity to ask. I find that when I begin to talk with people on an individual basis, that at first we exchange pleasantries, and then when they find out what I do, that I'm a pastor and that I'm a minister, and 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 that's my primary vocation and, and all of that. Generally, there's a head cock to the side, and then a question. And the first one's usually pretty easy, or it's it's something about uh, not taking sides or poking fun. It's something about Roman Catholicism. But then that leads to deeper questions. That leads to questions that for them, and you can see it in their face, you can see it in the way they express themselves, this is a question that has bothered me for quite some time. And so about 10 weeks ago, I asked you to submit questions on little brightly colored pieces of index cards. And uh, you guys did great, submitted a bunch of questions. By far and away, easily, the number one question that was asked is this, why do bad things happen to good people? Only one person asked it expressly just like that. Everybody else had a variation of that. But, but all of those questions fell underneath that umbrella of, of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? I would submit to you today that, that there is no question that causes more people to become atheists than this one. Most people who are atheist or agnostic, atheist meaning not only do they claim there is no God, no belief in God, but there is no God to believe in, agnostics, they might believe, only they have no reason to believe, no one has proven it to them. And so those two groups, something happens in their life, this question arises, they can't answer it, they become Atheist or agnostic. They will throw away everything they've learned from, uh, from a child through their teen years and even in their adult years because the pain that is happening through this circumstance or trial that they're in is, is seemingly unsurmountable. And surely a good God who loves his people would never cause anybody to hurt or be in this kind of pain. And so they deduce through faulty reasoning, that God must not exist. If I'm going through pain and God is good, then I must not, there must not be a God that I am seeking or serving. At best, he just doesn't like me. He's there, he's God, but he's just not very nice because I hurt. Now, I want to uh, give you a couple of dis uh, disclaimers before we really get into this. Number one, I don't have all the answers. Some of the questions were really good. One of the children asked me a question. Which is more important, Easter or Christmas? I thought, wow, that's a good question. Yeah. And, and, I just, and that one will be answered too because I thought that that was worthy of being answered. Um, 
I don't have all the answers. I'm not your spiritual guru. I'm not your spiritual referee where I come in and I, I blow my whistle. That's a foul, and, and you go that way, you go that way. Here's a red card or a yellow card, and, 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 and I don't have all the answers. In, in the book of Genesis, there's a man named Joseph. We're going to talk about him a little bit today. Uh, there's a time where uh, he, he interprets dreams. And um, he has this reputation of interpreting dreams. And, and one day, the, the, the Pharaoh needs a dream interpreted. He had this dream. He can't figure it out. He won't tell anybody what it is. That's sort of his uh, – oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm getting him mixed up with King Nebuchadnezzar. Anyways, he has these dreams. He can't interpret them. And so somebody pipe, you know, stands up and says, hey, what about Joseph? He can interpret dreams. And he rightly stands up. And other men have done the same thing. I, I don't do anything, he says. But God can do all things. And so I come before you humbly saying that I don't have all the answers, but my goal is to help you answer your questions. I love you enough that I would want to sit down and ponder and study the deep-seated questions of your life and, and truly try to find those answers and seek Jesus that he might give us those answers. Above all, I want you to be the kind of people who are not intimidated by questions, but rather when you find a question or a question arises in you, you attack it. You go to your word. You pull out your notebook. You go on the internet carefully to seek answers from men and from women who maybe have already answered these questions. Some of these questions, if you, if you um, listen to a man uh, by the name of uh, Ravi Zacharias, he is a, a very intelligent man, a Christian apologetist or apologetic. Um, his goal is to go to places that we would never go, universities, Mormon churches, and preach the gospel and then answer the questions people have to explain why he has faith in Christ and why Christ is trustworthy. If you have opportunity, go on YouTube or whatever. They have a podcast. Download uh, some of his teachings and listen to him and how he explains things. Very respectful, very very different than most pastors and preachers today who kind of come off and, and just want to be a bulldog about things and, and, and bully you into believing. He would rather just converse with you and talk with you. Very, very uh, gentle in teaching us some very deep, sometimes hurtful truths. Disclaimer number two, I don't stand here unscathed. I am not a person who lives a life free of pain. When you ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people, you aren't asking somebody who has not had a thing or two happen to them. And I want to share with you a brief list, an overview of the last eight years of mine and my wife's life. And I don't share this with you to brag or to say how great I am. I share it with you to show you how great Jesus is. And that we all go through things like this. Your life will not mirror mine, but we will share similar experiences. In 2005, Sarah and I, uh, we became pregnant with our first child. We were so excited. We had prayed for years. And uh, subsequently, our little 700-square-foot uh, condominium apartment was no longer going to be big enough. So we did the next logical thing. We bought the biggest house we could find. It's the American way. That's the way you have to do it. And our tiny uh, Jetta was no longer big enough, so we had to get a, a Jeep Grand Cherokee. Bigger, better, faster. All these things. We began decorating and, 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 and getting our home ready, and everything was going great. I had a job, and Sarah had a job, and, and we were just we – we're so excited for this next phase of our life. 
Um, in January 2006, I don't know what happened. I, I honestly cannot tell you. It seemed like a page from the calendar turned to the next. And, and I say this not as a, a just a, a cliche, but all hell broke loose, literally. In January of that year, one of uh, one of my mo- most beloved relatives, the guy in our in our family who who was uh, not only uh, an upstanding individual, he had served our country, he had had been serving as uh, interim chief of police, he committed suicide. That devastated our family. In February, I was laid off from my job. Now, many of you have been laid off. I just bought a house. And I don't know if, if it's different for you guys, but when, when, when you buy a house, they expect you to give them money. And, and to get the money, you go to the job, but I don't have the job anymore. So I get laid off in February. And then in March, Sarah goes into labor three months premature, and our son three days later dies. It's devastating. The next month, my, my parents separated. And, and, and without getting into too many details, we end up taking in my 12-year-old brother to live with us. That was five months in 2006. A lot of other things happened. By October of that year, we're pregnant with Ethan. Love Ethan. Beautiful boy. Blessing from God. Awesome. Still no job. Still need to make mortgage payments. The Lord took care of us. I'm not here to tell you that he did not, but I'm telling you that those were very hard, trying times. Lots of things happened. Then fast forward to 2012. I'm skipping a lot of things, and my wife will remind me later of all the things that I missed, but these are the, the, the highlights, or the, the, it's a weird word to use, but the highlights. 2012, we, we moved, oh, back up. Our church in California disintegrated. It exploded. It just, it just, it just fell apart. The church that I, I, I grew up in, that I learned to become a pastor, where I learned how to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus, it would, no longer was. I, I, it was devastating. So then we move out here, from California to here. In 2012, on Ethan's fifth birthday, we go celebrate, but he's kind of sick. We take him for blood work. He gets diagnosed with leukemia on his fifth birthday. We spend the next, what was it, 12, 13 days in the hospital. It's all a blur at this point. Ah, and we began the process of going through cancer treatment in Syracuse at, at uh, Galasano's Children's Hospital. Next year, Sarah's mom is diagnosed with cancer. In the meantime, Sarah's dad's having all these heart problems. We've been praying for him, and, and, and many of you know the details of what's going on there. These are just some of the things that are happening. I'm probably giving you the, the, the tip of the iceberg uh, analogy, but I want I want to share that with you, not because look how big and strong I am. I tell you these are things that have broken us time and time again, and and I'm not unlike many of you. The things that you are going through, I am going through my own set of things, and so so there's I want there to be no perception that because you're a pastor or a a minister or even a Christian that bad things don't happen to you anymore. Quite the contrary. It's like saying I enlisted uh, to serve in the war, and now I'm surprised that I'm in battle. That doesn't make any sense. You sign up knowing that that's the potential. You become a Christian knowing that these things might happen. 
And if you came into Christianity following Christ under the teaching that bad things should not happen to you, you have been taught wrongly and unbiblically. And I would pray that you would seek to find the truth of that in God's word. Now, that being said, why do bad things happen to good people? I want you to know this. This is a biblical good question. This is not a question you should shy away from. This is not a question that should you ask it, God becomes angry at you and how dare you question me? How dare you question everything about me and, and I've given you this? God's not like that. Jesus taught us how to pray and he said, come, he said, start by saying, Father. A good dad, when their child comes to them and asks them a question from a wide spectrum of ideas, a good father sits down and says, I'll help you get the answer. I will help answer this question. It's a silly question. Maybe, maybe the child's asking, why is the sky blue? You know, why do so many people like American Idol? Like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to answer certain questions, but those are good questions. Son, why, or, or dad, why do some people not like Jesus? It's a good question, son. A good father will sit down and answer your questions. And God the Father is not just no different. He's better. He's the best father. So we can come and ask these questions. We have that freedom that we can find in Christ to ask questions like this. If you feel guilty or ashamed for asking this type of question, I want to help lay that to rest. I want you to, to take that emotion. I want it to be, uh, to, to be replaced with a loving relationship with Jesus where you can ask these types of questions. Now, you can ask this question in a disrespectful way. You can be angry about it. You can be a, a, a spiritual jerk about it. You can go to God disrespectfully without reverence. He'll still answer you. I don't know if the answer will be as satisfactory or as, as pleasant as going to him you know, as a child goes to a dad, but he'll answer you nonetheless. If you read through the book of Psalms, and I encourage you this week, I challenge you this week, to read Psalms from Psalm 1 to Psalm 150. There's a lot of them. Some are like seven verses. Psalm 119 is like 170 verses. It's a challenge. But this week that you would do one of two things. Uh, read as many that you, as you can a day or look at the, the, the 150 Psalms, divide them up and read so many a day. Pastor Tony, that's going to take a lot of time. I know most challenges are challenging. Does that make sense? Challenge is challenging. Read the Psalms. Many of you, it's your favorite book. You're already there. You read a Psalm a day or something like that. Praise God. But I would encourage you and challenge you to read the Psalms this week. I brought three verses from the Psalms today. The first is found in Psalm 10. So write that down. Psalm 10 verses 1 and 2. These are only three, but the Psalms are filled with men who came to God and asked, not word for word, why do bad things happen to good people? But certainly ask questions that fall underneath that umbrella phrase or that umbrella question. So Psalm 10, verse 1 says, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now many of you would think, hearing something like this, Where's that man's faith? Doesn't he know that Jesus loves me? For the Bible tells me so. Doesn't he know these things? 
The Psalms are filled with raw emotion. Men, let me, let me ask you this question. Husbands specifically. Has your wife ever come to you with a problem? You subsequently solve her problem and somehow make the situation worse. <laughs> they come to you. This is all the garbage that happened to me today. You have answers for them, but that's not, that's not what they wanted. They simply wanted to vent to you. They know the answers. They're very smart individuals. And the purpose of their conversation was not to seek the answers that they already know, but it was to release these raw emotions from something as simple as being cut off while they were driving to someone you know, hurting them emotionally or physically or, or, or in any other way. And they simply want to vent to you. They know that people are jerks. They know that, that sin is in the world, but they want to vent to you. The psalmist in Psalm 10 is doing much the same. He knows the answers. And many of the Psalms that begin this way end with these men praising God. Saying that God is good and God can be trusted and God is everything. But they start with, God, where are you? Are you always going to be far away? What's the deal? People don't ask these questions when things are going good, do they? I got a raise at work and we just had a baby and, and the house and the bills are all paid for. God, where are you? Doesn't make any sense. We ask these questions when the house is crumbling, when everything's going wrong, when everything hurts, when all relationships are breaking. This is when we ask that question God, where are you? That's Psalm 10, verse 1. Psalm 13, verse 1 says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? A variation of this question is why do uh, bad people seem to be successful? You look at a man like, and I'm not here to like throw him under the bus, but you look at a man like Ted Turner. He owns like half the country, CNN and wrestling and the Atlanta Braves, and everything else in Atlanta. Billionaire. I mean, so much money that we, we wouldn't know how to spend it, and a, 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 a proud atheist. We would say, well, this man doesn't honor God, yet he's being blessed. The psalmist in Psalm 13 says the same thing. How, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? For some, it, for some, for David, it wasn't about um, my enemy is successful. It's my enemy is pursuing me and he's gaining on me. There were many times in David's life, both as a shepherd boy or as, a, as an anointed king, but not yet king, and even as an appointed king, where he had to run for his life. And he would question, God, why? What? I'm the king. Why am I running? What? Why am I filled with fear? God, where are you? Doesn't make any sense. We would assume that good people have good things and the bad people get bad things. Psalm 22, and this is the last one I'll share with you. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? 
Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, uh, and by night, but I find no rest. These were the words that Jesus quoted as he hung from the cross, not in despair, not because God was not answering him, certainly at least because of the pain being afflicted upon him because of the sins of the world and, and not the sins of himself. But my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Bad things happen to good people. I don't think I have to... I don't think I have to sell you on that. We understand this. From the earliest memories we have, we remember things that happened to us that were bad and we seemingly did nothing to deserve it. So why? Here's the real question. That's a very good question. Why do bad things happen to good people? But here's what people are really asking when they ask that question. Why does it hurt so bad? Does God not love me? Does God not like me? Has he forsaken or abandoned me? If he's so good, why does this hurt so bad? Most people won't go as far to say that they themselves are good. But when something like a child going through cancer and they know that their child is their child, their pride and joy, you know, when they go through something, it's like, I understand why you do that to me, but what about them? Or maybe it's your grandparents, and, and you, you think the world of them, and, they, and they've loved you and cared for you and cooked for you and, and, and just showered you with love, and then they get diagnosed with something. You think such a good person going through such a bad, evil thing. Why? Why does it hurt so bad? God, where are you? What do we do? This is a big question. And it's exactly why we're doing this. The last thing I want you to do is to be an on-fire Christian who loves Jesus, have something come and literally punch you in the face, and then you run away from Christ. I want you to be able to stand and endure through Christ so that you not only thrive in those circumstances, you come out stronger in those circumstances. So... One of the things we're in danger of doing here this morning is looking at this so intellectually that we miss the emotional catharsis that needs to happen, the, the, the connection emotionally and spiritually. I could tell you one plus one equals two. I could keep this mathematical and intellectual, very cerebral. And you might have the right facts, but that will not bring healing. They certainly help. My point is not to forsake one for the other. We've got to do both. So I need you to continue to hang in there, to, to go back to kindergarten, put your thinking caps on, but to stay spiritually open to Jesus so that he might bring an answer to us. So the first thing I want to do is define bad things. Question, if you fell and shattered your pelvis, would it be a bad thing? Yes or no? Just yes or no? Yes! Shattering your pelvis, I'm going to just guess, hurts. You fall down, your pelvis breaks, the bone in your pelvis breaks. 
You can't walk anymore. You can't stand up anymore. And you are in pain. Bad thing, right? What if in the process of going to the doctor and having x-rays performed, you find out, huh, right where the crack of your pelvis is, there is a tumor. Now, did the crack in the pelvis still hurt? Yes. But has the crack in the pelvis now become, I don't want to say less of a bad thing, but somehow that bad thing was redeemed to be used as a good thing? Yes or no? Because a cracked bone heals. An unchecked tumor grows. This is not just an illustration. This happened to my family this week. Got a call from, or a Facebook notification from one of my cousins that lives in Tennessee. Her son, who was 18, fell while playing basketball and broke his pelvis. Went to the doctor, had all the tests done. They found a tumor where the crack was. Bad things still hurt. Here's where I don't want to lose you. Bad things become good things, and bad things don't hurt anymore. No. Bad things, even when they become good things, they still hurt. He still can't walk. They found the tumor, but he still can't walk. Some of you have gone through broken relationships and then found the one. Oh, the, the one whom God has given to you, your soulmate. It doesn't make the broken hearts of the past any less hurtful. It just gives them a purpose. And so when we talk about bad things, we have to, we have to do something very, uh, very carefully here. We have to make sure that we don't throw everything under this blanket of bad and assume that A, it's an attack from Satan, or B, that nothing good can come from it. The bad things that, that maybe you're thinking about right now, the lost loved ones, the, the bad diagnosis, the, the experiences that crushed you, it would be foolish and just downright mean of me to tell you that psh, those aren't that bad. You shouldn't be feeling pain over those things still. No, they're still very painful because they are bad things. But bad things in the hand of a good God become so much more. They gain purpose. They now help you. They go from being an inflicted wound. They become a scar. And those scars testify to the goodness of God. See what I have been through. See what God has brought me through. You see this wound here? It's no longer a wound. God has healed me. And now I am stronger through it. It was a bad thing that God turned into a good thing. If you've ever had to discipline a child and they ask you why and they wonder, mom and dad, if you love me, why would you discipline me? Good parents turn around and say, it's because I love you that I will do this now so that you will learn later. I will do something that's seemingly bad now, taking away something, time out, whatever your, your disciplinary method is. I will do this now, not vindictively, not, not in revenge, but I'll do so as, as a consequence to your actions and discipline you in this way so that you may learn and grow from it. And so that a bad thing for you turns into a good thing for you. Now, most of us don't struggle with this definition of bad things. Most of us don't have a hard time grasping this. It's the next part that we're going to struggle with. 
the defining of good people. How many people know good people? Raise your hand. How many people are good people? <laughs> Mark. Yeah. Mark's a pretty good guy. The rest of you, pretty good people. How many people had that grandma? Loved her. My grandma took me to church where I first gave my life to Christ. My grandma wasn't perfect, loved grandma. Um, how many people had that, that friend or that, that, that person in your life that was more than a friend, and then something happens to them and you just, ah, oh, not them. Why them? What, of all the people, why not, you know, when he was still alive, why not Osama bin Laden? Why not Saddam? Why not some distant dictator who's taking the lives of people uh, at his own whim? Why isn't he suffering? Why is this person suffering? They are good people. They're a good Christian. Why? I'll tell you why. Our definition of good and God's definition of good when it comes to people are entirely different. We measure people to people. We line up grandma next to Hitler and say, you know what? Grandma was a lot better than Hitler, right? We line up grandma or the friend to Joseph Stalin. Friend wins, much better person. But that's the folly of how we measure people. When God measures people, it's Jesus and grandma. Uh-oh, grandma loses. Grandma's a sinner. Jesus is not. Friend has done things and taken advantage of people through sin. Jesus is not. I want you to know that the measurement of good is not found in the ruler that we have. It's found in the person of Jesus. He is perfection. He is good. And he alone is good. Here's what the Bible says about us. Romans 3 and 9, what then? Are the Jews any better off? In the book of Romans, Paul is, is comparing and putting into groups the Jews and the Gentiles. If you're not Jewish today, you're a Gentile. There's your definition of the two. He's comparing the two, who's better, who's worse off, what's happening. He's, he's, he's destroying these two classes and making the church. He says, are Jews better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Paul quotes the Old Testament, bringing it into the New Testament, who we are outside of Christ. Are we good? No. Isaiah says that our own righteousness, our self-righteousness, hangs on us like filthy rags. Later in Romans, just a few verses later, Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In your self. Take Christ out of the equation. He's over here right now. You're right here. By yourself. Without the redemptive work of Christ, you are a sinner. And you have sinned. My children, they're four and seven. When we sit down at night, you know what I ask them? 
Is there something you did today that would be considered a sin? And they will tell me, yes. What? Well, I, I disobeyed you when you told me to do this and not that. Yeah. We repent. I share with them that God is not sitting up in heaven saying, how dare you betray me? I got a lot of voices today. I don't know if you noticed that. How dare you betray me? How dare you come to me with your repentance? Because obviously God is semi-European. I told them, no. God is a loving God with his arms open waiting for you, wanting to extend grace and mercy to you and, and already has so that you might repent. And they do. And they smile and they realize, I messed up, but Jesus loves me. I messed up. I did something that I shouldn't have done, but Jesus loves me more than my sin. And Jesus has died for those sins. And that doesn't allow me free license to sin, but it certainly gives me grace and mercy to repent of my sin. If we measure people to people, yeah, we're going to come out on top. If you're going to measure yourself against some other human being who's faulty and sinful, you could probably come out on top. You compare yourself to somebody like Michael Vick, convicted of, of killing dogs in a dog fighting ring, you're, you compare you and him, you're probably going to be okay. You know, you compare yourself to this person or that person, yeah. But compare yourself to Jesus. Now who's good? Jesus and Jesus alone. And nothing makes Jesus seem more holy than when he com is compared to the darkness of who we are. And nothing makes our unholiness that much more recognizable than when we compare ourselves to Christ. When Christ says, love your enemies as yourself, we've all fallen short of that one. Love God above all things. That's a tough one. We've all fallen short. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel of Jesus. Even in our darkness, even in our, in our sin, even in our, our badness, Christ dies for us so that we can be forgiven of these things. That these are no longer the markers of who we are or our identity, that now we are found in Christ and we are his child. And from that moment until the day that we die and pass on into eternity, we are going to go through what is called a refining process. And God is going to purge us of the bad through these bad circumstances. He has not allowed these things to happen to you to destroy you, but to make you stronger. He has, he has somehow orchestrated sin and Satan and death somehow to still work for good. I don't know how he does it. I guess that's what makes him God and me not. He can take the bad and use it for good. Have you ever read the story of Joseph? Genesis chapter 30 to Genesis chapter 50. Big chunk of the book dedicated to the life of Joseph. Son of Jacob slash Israel, one of the youngest of his 12 sons, and, and Jacob's favorite. And he has these dreams and these visions, and he shares them with his dad and his brothers, and his brothers don't like it. So what do they do? They throw him down a hole, a cistern, a well, an empty one. I've only seen a handful of wells. They don't look like the kind of place where you want to hang out. 
And if you were to be thrown down one, that you'd come out saying, oh, come on, guys. Fun's fun, but let me out of here. No, they throw him down this well. And he has this beautiful coat that his father has given him. It's got blood on it. They concoct this plan. Uh, he was killed. Dad, here's the coat. Here's the evidence. He's dead. Bad enough, right? Then they decide, let's not leave him for, for dead. Let's sell him for profit. Band of gypsies or whatever come by, and they say, hey, you want to buy my brother? And it's a different time, apparently, because they're like, well, yeah, I'll buy your brother. You know, they were all out of brother at Brothers Mart, so we'll buy your brother. And so they bring him out of the well. I like to ponder in my head, speculate. I wonder what Joseph was thinking as he's coming out of that hole. Oh, my brothers, they're, they're saving me. They're, they couldn't go through with it. Boy, I'm going to change. I'm not going to share my dreams with those guys anymore. Huh? Oh, I'm a slave now. And that's, that's just the beginning. He's, he's sold into slavery. He ends up in a man named Potiphar's house. He ends up moving through Potiphar's house. He becomes ruler of all that Potiphar has. And then Potiphar's wife wants to have sex with Joseph. Okay? And she makes a move on him. And Joseph's not, you know, he's, not, he's been through a lot, but he's not going to do this. He's not going to betray his master. So he says, no, and he runs out. She grabs his coat as he's running out. He's at least in his boxer briefs, if anything else. And then she begins to accuse him. He tried to rape me. So he gets thrown in jail, obviously. The day before DNA tests and all that. So he's thrown in jail. In jail, he begins to work again. I don't, you know, maybe I just read the Bible too fast, but I would think if I'm sitting in jail, there's a lot of days where I just sit kind of like this. What in the world? Why? But it seems like with Joseph, he gets up and decides, you know what? I'm going to make the best of a bad situation. I'm going to clean dishes. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do that. And he interprets some dreams there for two men who were imprisoned. Later gets remembered when the king needs a dream interpreted. He gets taken from prison. He interprets the dream. Next thing you know, he's second in command in Egypt. Meanwhile, his 11 brothers, his family, they're suffering through this plague. They're suffering through this, this famine. And they've got to go buy food from Egypt. See, you've got to go back to the story. A lot of details. But they go to Egypt to buy food, and they go to Joseph, but they don't, they don't recognize him. He's got one of those mustaches or something. I don't know. They don't recognize their brother. It's been decades. And, and he doesn't reveal himself right away. He begins to question and ask. And if you watch the VeggieTales version, it's really good. But at the end, there's this big reveal. Aha! I am Joseph, your brother. I, I, what you intended for evil in selling me or throwing me down a hole and then selling me to this band of raiders or gypsies or whatever... God has taken that bad and used it for good because now my family is surviving this, this famine that is destroying the land because God has placed me here at this time and in this place. I don't know about you. If I saw my 11 brothers who threw me down a hole, I don't know that I'd sell them any food. I'm just going to be real honest with you. There's be a lot. Of, I remember my, I hit my head and it hurt and then I did all this stuff. You don't know what I've been through. But not Joseph. He has this revelation of God and seeing that what, what, what his brothers intended for evil, God used for good. 
many of your lives mimic, maybe not to the degree, but they mimic what Joseph went through. And I'm here to tell you today that what, what the world or what Satan or what sin or what your flesh intends for evil, God can even take that and use it for good. But why do we haven't answered the question why yet? Why? Sin is a thing. The very definition of sin causes a person to take advantage of somebody else. First themselves, then another person. For those of you caught up in the sin of pornography and think it's just me, not hurting anybody, I guarantee you have a wife who is devastated by it. You have children that once they find out, they will be devastated by it. Sin in its very nature is not inclusive or exclusive to just one individual. When somebody sins, it leaves pain and destruction in their wake. And so many times you go through stuff because somebody else has sinned or because you have sinned. Now, God is good. Even when we sin, he still, he still cleans us up. Amen? When we make stupid mistakes and foolish choices, God still helps us out of those things. But there are times where somebody sins and they do things either indirectly to us or directly to us. We, we live in a community of people who have been devastated by things like rape and, 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 and being molested or abused as a child sexually. This is the reality of the people we run into. Some of them to cope have just, that's just, an, that's just what happens. No, no, it's not. Sin is wrong. And when it hurts somebody, and it always does. It becomes bad things that destroy us. Because of sin, things like sicknesses have entered the world. Here's not what I mean. You sinned, so you got sick. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that before the fall in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, there's no indication that there's any kind of illness. There's no indication that there's any kind of sickness until the fall happens, until they, they take of the fruit and they eat, and, and God comes and brings judgment to them. Because of that act of disobedience and rebellion, sickness entered into the world. So even sickness today has its roots in sin. When I, when I watch my son and I remember that he has leukemia, it's not because he sinned or I sinned or his mother sinned. It's because sin entered the world and, we, and everything's de decaying and, and falling apart. It's one of the reasons why I don't believe in evolution. And I don't get into this debate very often and I'm not doing that now. But most things, if you leave them by themselves, they don't flourish and get better. They decay and become worse. And because of sin, this world is decaying and becoming worse. Part of the reason why Jesus calls us the salt and the light to go out to bring not only uh, light to who Jesus is, but to bring uh, that, that slowing down process that salt brings with it. And Satan, you know, we can't blame everything on Satan. You ever met those people, just everything that happens? they got a flat tire. It's the spirit of flat tires. No, you just ran over a nail. Um, but but don't, don't go so far on the other end of the spectrum that you miss the fact that Satan, Peter says, it goes about like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There are times where you are going through things because a very real enemy is attacking you. 
A very real enemy is looking to destroy you simply because you have faith in Christ. If you read the story of Job in the Old Testament, I always picture Satan waving his finger before God's face saying, if you take away from him, then he'll curse you. If you take away from Job, then he'll curse you. Satan is the accuser. Satan is is the one who seeks to destroy you and I. He doesn't have a pitchfork and a pointy tail and horns. He masquerades as an angel of light. He he infiltrates and he 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 woos and he destroys. And not everything can be blamed on Satan. But that doesn't mean that Satan is not responsible for some things. And I've, at, and I've had people often ask me, and I can't answer this question, why does God allow Satan to still exist? I simply just give that one back to God and say, God, only you know why you do it. You did things this way. I do know this, though. The plan that we are on right now is not a result of God having to call an audible. In football, the quarterback, if he sees a defense shift in a certain way, he's got to change the play. Called an audible. Adam and Eve didn't eat the fruit, and then all of a sudden he had to call an audible. Oh, they messed up my plan. God in his omnipotence and omniscience saw that, and this was his plan from the very beginning. From the foundations of time, it was his plan to send his son in the form of a man to die for the sins of the world so that we might become the children of God. When Jesus in John chapter 10 is talking about false shepherds. He says, hired hand shepherds, they, they enter the sheepfold any way that they want. You can identify them by the way that they enter through the sheep, into the sheepfold. They're hopping fences. They're going under things. They're not legitimate. But Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the, the good shepherd. Says that the thief comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And first, Jesus in context is talking about false shepherds, but this applies to any enemy, including Satan. That he comes to kill and steal and destroy you. Don't go so far to one end of the spectrum that Satan doesn't exist. Don't go so far to the other end that Satan isn't everything. There's a balance. There are some choices we make, and we make them foolishly. Maybe he tempted us to do them. Maybe our flesh just wanted to do them and our flesh is to blame. Maybe we just are just foolish people. Sometimes Satan is actually coming after you and looking to destroy you. But these are all answered. We'll wrap this up here. I want to, first of all, tell you, you know, if you're new here, this is about how long we go in preaching. And and that's good because we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But all of this is, is corrected not only now, but for eternity through the cross of Christ. The cross is where Jesus defeats Satan. The cross is where Jesus defeats sin. The cross is where Jesus defeats death. Without the cross, we have no hope. Without the cross, there is no healing. Without the cross, there is no overcoming. There is no being victorious. Without the Son of God coming to die on the cross for our sins. And I say that for two reasons. One, to tell you intellectually that something has already transpired so that you can overcome, but that emotionally you as well and spiritually you can say, you know what? 
bad things will happen. They might be just on the horizon and I will get through them because Jesus, the good of all people, he stood in the midst of bad and he took it on and he destroyed it through his sacrifice. And everything that I might go through is not like the cross, but God will use it to make me a different person, to change me, to cause me to be reborn and transformed by him. Paul says this. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Most people surgically remove verse 13 from verse 12. It becomes their bumper sticker, their plaque on the wall, their Bible cover, their t-shirt. I can do all things through him or I can do all things through Christ through Christ who strengthens me. But when you do that, you remove so much of the power. Paul says, I know the strength that only Christ can provide, not because my life has been absent of the bad, but because I have endured the bad with Jesus. You can go through these things, not because you're really strong, but because Jesus is really strong. You can endure, not because you've learned enough Bible, because you've been to church enough, because somebody prayed for you, but because you have Christ in you. And you only know that you can make it through Christ by going through things with Christ. Without going through the bad with Jesus as your strength, you would never know him in that way. He would be theory and nothing else. But when you go through the loss of a child or the diagnosis of an illness or the breakup of a relationship or the devastation of losing your finances or your job or your house or anything, you, you know and you experience the strength of Christ in that moment unlike any other time of your life. And don't throw it away. Modern theology would tell you, modern false theology would tell you, bad things shouldn't happen to you, and if they do, you need to rebuke them and, and just and, and ignore them. False. I tell you today that you go through those times to glorify God in them so that God can see how great, excuse me, so that people can see how great God is, not how great you are. Seeing how great you are leads to self-righteousness. And there's nothing more repugnant than a religious, self-righteous person. And there's nothing more refreshing than a person who is broken and raising their hands to Christ in hallelujah. And so church, I'm not telling you, I'm not giving you the magic secret formula to get out of bad circumstances. I'm telling you what the Bible tells you about A, we're not as good as we think we are, and B, the bad circumstances, God will use them to make you into the person he wants you to be. Let's stand together. Every circumstance can be used of God. Everything that you go, even our foolish mistakes, God can still use them. God can take the bad that we go through because of sin and Satan, because of our flesh, because of the nature of who we are, the nature of our world. He can take that bad and still use it for good. 
And the good news is, is that one day this world goes away and the brand new that we find in the book of Revelation, the new heavens, the new earth, where complete healing is found, where complete rebirth and regeneration is fully culminated. All the old comes to an end and the brand new is all that's left. Now, how many of you struggled with this question? Raise your hand. Just be honest today. Why do bad things happen to good people? Everybody does. And I'm going to be real honest with you. My answer doesn't get you out of the bad situations. It was never intended to. Paul says, I know Christ through my sufferings. When the apostles were beaten for preaching the word of God, they counted them, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer like Christ. Church, I don't, I don't want you to re- be removed. I, I do want you to be healed and whole and all that, but I don't want you to waste your opportunities either to know Christ in a way that you'll only find him through these circumstances. So I want to pray for you. I want to pray that this would be a moment, not where everything goes away, but where, where spiritual steel is put into your back. Some of you have weak knees and weak backs for whatever reason. You've broken them or hurt them or just overused them. And they're faltering, but spiritually, I need you to be strong. The backs and the I need you guys to be able to stand in the strength of Christ. And I want to pray for that for you today. Let's pray. Jesus, we have, if we were to sit here and, and rehash our life experiences, we would, we would share things that we've all gone through that would devastate us as we listen, as we share of the loss, as we share of the pain, as we share of the abuse, as we share of the addictions, as we just share of the things that we have endured for, for years and even decades. But Lord, here's what I know, that somehow only you, Jesus, can bring us through these things and in the process make us better and have yourself be glorified. I don't know how you do it, but I know that you do. I know that 2,000 years ago, something really bad happened to you, and in that you conquered sin, Satan, and death, that you redeemed your people, and you gave us access to you that we might become the children of God. I don't know how you take something so bad and make it so good, but we rejoice today knowing that you do. And I pray for every person here today, Lord. It is not my will that any one of them would hurt or be in pain. But Lord, if I were to to have my prayer answered, I would be robbing them of many of the blessings that you seek to show them and the things you seek to teach them in those times of darkness, in their, in their spiritual well or hole in the ground, if you will. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to have eyes to see what you are doing in the midst of these trials and in the midst of these hardships, that they can see, Jesus, you are good, that you did something only you can do, that you took the garbage of my life and you made it into beauty. You took the old and made it new. You took the disappointment and made it joy. You took the chaos and made it peace. And we don't know how you did. We just rejoice that you have. May you fill your people with such joy. Jesus, you are good, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.